Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural, and the just plain weird. Today we are going to continue our series exploring the history of witchcraft, with a particular focus on its overlap with the treatment of women generally. So this is part two to last week's episode, where we are going to be furthering our exploration of one of the most violent and explosive periods of the history of the witch hunt, the New England Witch Hunt with particular focus on Salem, Massachusetts. Last week we talked about some of the witch trials pre-Salem, and in particular the ways in which some of them could be seen as a continuation of the witch craze in Europe, in the kinds of people accused of being witches, and the crimes that they were accused of, and the kind of legal and social outcomes to these accusations. So these cases form an illuminating contrast to the trials at Salem in that we can trace through them what was highlighted in Salem and what wasn't, and what made the situation there unique. However, something I hope will be conveyed throughout is the idea that the Salem situation wasn't an anomaly. It didn't come from a vacuum and was subject to the same kinds of processes that we've explored of the witch archetype evolving over time and being influenced by the media around it. And for this reason, it is important that we recognise that this period of history, one many view as a strange kind of barbaric throwback, is the culmination of a repeatable process by which those in power can commit sanctioned murder. So thanks once again to the excellent The Witch, A History of Fear from Ancient Times to the Present by Ronald Hutton, as well as Emotions in the History of Witchcraft, which explores witchcraft from the viewpoint of the performative and often social dimensions of the strong emotions at the heart of these community spectacles. The Penguin Book of Witches has also provided many essential primary sources surrounding the New England witch trials, which I couldn't have done without. So if you haven't already, I would very much recommend listening to last week's episode for some useful context. But today we're primarily going to be talking about the witch trials of Salem, Massachusetts, with a few key cases. Just as a quick aside, the events of Salem were, of course, dramatised in Arthur Miller's The Crucible, but I'm ashamed to say I haven't ever seen or read it, so I'm sorry I won't be talking much about it today, but I may be doing so in the future. But for now... Let's get on with it. So the trials at Salem, Massachusetts began in 1692 with the arrest of Sarah Good. Now Good was a beggar, married with children, but not attending church with the bulk of her community due to a lack of suitable clothing. So other than not being a widow, as many victims of witchcraft accusations were, she was an almost textbook example of the kind of people vulnerable to being labelled as witches. Women, even married ones, were in an especially vulnerable economic position at this time in New England, often denied inheritance, yet subject to the debts of their husbands. So Good was said to have done harm to a number of other community members, and like many of those who preceded her, it seems as if it were her dependence on her neighbours in this fledgling new society that would ultimately turn her neighbours against her. Abigail Williams and Elizabeth Paris, to be specific, came forward to Reverend Samuel Paris, complaining of being bewitched by good. The girls would have violent fits in which their bodies would involuntarily convulse, their eyes rolling back into their head, 
their tongues hanging out, only able to shout out the names of their tormentors. And those tormentors were Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba Indian. Abigail Williams was around 11 or 12 at the time, and Elizabeth or Betty Harris around 10. So Sarah Osborne had also aroused suspicion in her community by stopping attending church due to a long-term illness, believed by many nowadays to be depression. Well, of course, there wasn't this idea of depression at the time. So she was also tied up in a lengthy legal battle with another local family, the Putnam family, over some land disputes. After the death of her first husband, brother-in-law to a member of the Putnam family, her decision to take over and run her husband's farm instead of passing it to her children caused a rift between these two families that was thought to have been the seed from which many of these accusations grew. She also displayed a kind of transgressional sexuality in that she lived with a much younger man at the time, an Irish indentured immigrant with whom she ran the farm. Tituba Indian, however, was a slave in Paris's house, brought to colonial Massachusetts from Barbados by Samuel Paris himself. It would be the Paris household where the girls would be first afflicted, and her situation was more similar to the Knapp possession, which we will talk about later, in fact. But in short, Tituba's accusation of witchcraft had some interesting socially transgressional implications quite different from the accused Sarah's. The Sarahs both had fairly established poor reputations and were generally said to be disagreeable to the communities which sought to shun them. But this mutual dislike, even with the accusation of Betty and Abigail, would not be enough to seed the Salem witch trials. It would be the confession of Tituba which would get the ball rolling, as although initially Tituba denied any wrongdoing, she eventually confessed to being part of a conspiracy of witchcraft involving Good and Osborne, as well as others whom she would not name. The devil had come to her, she said, a man in a tall hat with white hair and black clothes, a description which many have pointed out had a remarkable similarity to her owner, Samuel Paris. But it was her admittance of guilt, coerced or not, and implication of others in the conspiracy, which would cause an exponential growth in accusations, due to the societal belief in the veracity of an admitted witch's confession. So as written in William Perkins' A Discourse of the Damned Art of Witchcraft, which we have already discussed, was instrumental in shaping the the trials as they went along, the word of a confessed witch was enough to implicate another. Tituba's confession, for whatever reason she did confess, under the guiding hand of Perkins set off a chain reaction as the community attempted to root out this hidden conspiracy of witches. When questioned, the women all spoke of a spectral visitor, the devil, inducing them to join him under threat of harm to themselves and others, and promises of fine things and the freedom they all dreamt of. Tichiba in particular confessed to having made a witch's cake, although in her explanation it was in an attempt to help the already suffering Betty Paris, with the occult technique having been picked up in Barbados, not from the devil or the other accused women. But as the trials were bogged down in sluggish legal proceedings, confessions which would normally end in a swift prosecution or execution resulted in imprisonment, 
with more and more accusations thrown out and more and more imprisoned. Because the thing you have to remember with these is that once an individual was accused, they really didn't have many ways to defend themselves. As we've already discussed, any number of behaviours could be used to label one a witch. Any number of sort of physical ailments could be used as a sign of the devil's mark on your body. So once accused, your methods for dodging execution were pretty much limited to implicating others and helping the trial proceedings. There was no real way to navigate yourself out of it without implicating others. So this is to say any of the any of the accused are not at fault here. They were simply just trying their best to preserve their lives against a system which was 100% stacked against them. But Martha Corey was one such person implicated. But as a show of just how insidious this belief in the power of the confessed witch's words were in implicating others, Corey was a lady who would be seemingly above reproach in any other situation. A member of the church, rich, married, untouched by scandal of any real kind, the 1692 case represents a distinct turning point at which the word of a confessed witch and a slave woman was trusted over that of a well-respected lady of the church. So this just goes to show how much this simple belief that a confessed witch's words were to be trusted enabled these trials to move past many of the hurdles which usually stopped cases like these from bubbling out into the huge spectacle that it would become i.e. the involvement of higher-class people, married women whose husbands often had power, and the implication of religious folks. Now, Martha Corey was rightly dubious to believe the words of the afflicted child victims in this case, but in the company of strict Puritans, the argument was used that to not believe in witches and their power was to not believe in God. Now, did Martha not believing in the children necessarily mean that she didn't believe in witchcraft generally? No, but nonetheless Martha maintained her scepticism and defended herself on trial as a woman of God, knowing that only God could truly judge her as a community of her peers turned against her. To quote her on her own defence, we must not believe all that these distracted children say, she says. But unfortunately, at this point, nobody would really pay attention to this warning. Rebecca Nurse, like Martha Corey, was a universally well-liked and respected member of the church and community, and she would also come to be accused of being a witch by another imprisoned witch. However, what makes her case of particular note to the Salem situation is that all that she supposedly did as a witch she did in spectral form, as she was bedbound and too sick to be of any physical threat to anyone in her community. Now, the victim in this case was Anne Putnam Jr., and the nurse and Putnam family had long been in conflict over land rights for some time, similar in this way to the situation with Sarah Osborne. Nonetheless, Nurse sympathised and believed in Putnam's suffering, unlike Corey, although she didn't believe herself to be the cause of it. So similar to other cases in Salem, the interrogator in this public trial, Mr. Haythorne, attempted to lead Nurse to the idea that she may have somehow fallen to temptation at some point, 
and embroiled herself in this witchcraft conspiracy. To quote, Possibly you may apprehend you are no witch, but have you not been led aside by temptation that way? She was also asked if she was not guilty, why she didn't visit those who were afflicted by fits. As because they always did, the fits and the number of those affected had spread. A nurse's answer is in reference to this seeming catching nature of the fits, that she worried if she visited them, that she might catch them too. So Nurse was already fairly frail and on the older side, believed to have been around 71 when she was accused. What's more, the ridiculous nature of her accusation was evident to much of the community, with dozens signing a petition on her behalf to have her exonerated. Nonetheless, she stood trial for her accusations, and as was the procedure at the time, as with all the others, she was to defend herself, as she was not permitted to have a lawyer. Now, Anne Putnam was the oldest child of Thomas and Anne Putnam, so mother and daughter had the same name. And friends with a number of other afflicted girls, including Abigail Williams, one of the first to be afflicted. Now, some have described her as the ringleader of what had come to be the Salem witch hunt, as she was thought to have been responsible for the accusations of at least 60 people. Now, this astounding figure just goes to show how far the children's afflictions were wholeheartedly believed, as well as how much the implication of other accused witches was taken into account. In any other situation, without these two ironclad beliefs working together, it is hard to imagine the accusations reaching such a scale without some large external influence, like a plague, drought, or a disease. That is not to say that there are not theories to such, and I will touch on them later. But Anne, along with a servant in the Putnam household, Mercy Lewis, would be the first outside of the Paris household to be afflicted by bewitchment and said to have been plagued by the image of those afflicting them. Now, as we've already touched on, the Putnam family were involved in a number of feuds with other families over various economic issues. So in terms of motivation for this kind of societal rift forming, there were clear benefits for some in the conviction of others. But that's not the most interesting thing here, as said. Rebecca Nurse was accused by Mary Putnam when she was bedbound. Therefore, the case against her boiled down to just spectral evidence against her, i.e. the image of Rebecca Nurse visiting Putnam in her bewitched state. Now, spectral evidence and the question of convicting the image of a person as that person was a debate that only intensified as the trials would continue. After all, accepting spectral evidence as true and sufficient to convict another, this raised the question, if the devil takes over your form and can mix acts of violence, are you innocent or guilty? Of those who confessed to having a part in the witchcraft which they were accused, Many accounts were very similar for a number of reasons, but many were led by a series of careful questions to the idea that they had somewhere along the line relented to the temptations of the devil. And if it was not necessary for conviction to have the individual admit to becoming a witch, 
more than just having been weakened by the devil in compelling them to it via threats to them or others or physical and mental violence against them, their agency in their fate was optional for conviction. A related debate was on the subject of whether it was simply not possible for the devil to take your form if you are not in some way guilty or didn't invite it in some way. Now, the proceedings of the public trials were designed in such a way as to lead the accused into revealing this point of invitation. But these were debates that were raging as the witch trials were at their peak. Susanna Martin, in her own defence against being accused of witchcraft, made a theological point about this in reference to the Bible's witch of Endor, who used their witchcraft to conjure the image of Samuel. If, she says glorified Saint Samuel could be represented by witchcraft, any person could, and crucially any innocent person could. Martin also, in her own defence, alluded to the nature of words being twisted in the spectacle of the trial, to quote, Why, my thoughts are my own when they are in, but when they are out, they are another's. So whether those did or did not believe that the devil could take the form of an innocent person, or if anyone were able to resist the temptations of the devil when his attention is focused to turning you to witchcraft, what is not under debate is that the bulk of evidence against many of those involved were the apparitions of them as reported by their victims. In Martin's trial, her inquisitor highlights the fragility of this position and how much it relied on this evidence even if some even went as far as to believe the apparition of the person and the person themselves as being separate, conscious entities, putting it thus. When this witchcraft came upon the stage, there was no suspicion of Tichiba. She professed much love to that child, Betty Paris, but it was her apparition that did the mischief. And why should you not also be guilty? For your apparition doth hurt also. But yeah, that's the question. Did those involved in the trial even believe that the apparition of the person and the person were under the same control? There is definitely doubt there. And the influence of the devil seems to be able to compel one or both into bewitching the victims and causing all manner of distressing physical symptoms. Let's talk about that now and address the fact that the bewitchment in these cases has much more in common with what we would now call demonic possession as opposed to the witch trials that we are used to. It is much more performative and it is much more violent. For instance, Elizabeth Knapp was a servant in the house of Reverend Samuel Willard when in October 1671 she began to experience extreme physical fits. So this occurred quite some time before the events of Salem in 1692 and around 50 miles from Salem. So like first accusations at Salem, for this to happen in the home of a respected Puritan leader's household may have helped fan the flames of what was to come. So as described in the Penguin Book of Witches, what made this case remarkable was that, in effect, she, meaning Knapp, is a bewitched victim without a witch i.e. she suffered the same affliction as those we've spoken of, but without a locus around which to focus the scrutiny. But that may not have been as big a distinction as appears on the surface. So the Knapp possession, as it would come to be known, 
exemplifies the socially transgressive nature of this case. There was no social outcast or sexually or socially transgressive woman to blame. More nap situation in itself allowed her certain freedoms forbidden to her and in itself was socially transgressive. As a servant in a Puritan household, Knapp's days were structured and labour-intensive, and as a religious woman herself, her avenues for striking out against her life were few. To quote again the Penguin Book of Witches, a case can be made for the religious expression of extreme distress that could not be legitimately expressed in any other avenue. I.e. there was a certain freedom in being bewitched, her actions were not her own, and in being bedridden and unable to go about her normal duties, the immediate rallying of the family and wider community around her also gave her the kind of attention that she had probably never experienced before. Her fits would exhibit themselves as a succession of strong emotive displays, weeping, laughing, acting the fool, she would throw herself on the floor or thrash around seemingly with the force of many men. Although, of course, she was very hardworking and her job very labour-intensive, so she was no doubt stronger than some may have given her credit for. The devil had appeared to her, she says, with offerings of silks, food, money, travel and a break from her labour, all that which her class forbade her from having and her faith forbade her from even dreaming of. She would solemnly deny having formed a covenant with the devil, but after this torment and this spectral visits had been going on for years, she was ground down and feeling hopeless, felt she may as well sign this book with an X as she could not write her name, as her torment was unending anyway. She had been led to a point of giving herself over to the devil. Now this is something that gets a little glossed over in some of these cases. As we've already said last week, so to put it bluntly, much if not all that was happening to these victims was one, fairly easy to feign, and two, gaining them a lot of external attention. Now what is also true is that there is a decent amount of evidence in most cases that they were pretty intensely compelled by members of their family and the community to show these afflictions, or the very least surrounded by the idea of this highly visible viral rash of bewitchments to which they were vulnerable. But both victims and accused were often put in an interesting position, in that their words, their complaints, beforehand often ignored, were heard, recorded and acted upon. And for people like Knapp, there may have been quite a few benefits and freedoms to being apparently tormented and bewitched. But ultimately it was her faith and guilty conscience that compelled her to confess that the devilish apparitions were fancies, as images represented in a dream. Although they no doubt still opened a window into her inner life and in her belief, it was just a wish, a passing hope, that he would come to free her from her life when her labours were too much. Now the feats achieved by her in sickness were not fully explained by those around her, so the ways in which she seemed to speak with her tongue pressed to the roof of her mouth, the strength she displayed, how she seemed to not be wasting away but in fact gaining weight, probably of course because she was being fussed over and 
fed better. She became, for her house and community, an object of pity. And in this rare case, there was nobody, of course, to convict for it. Whether this case was known to those involved in the Salem trials, we can't, of course, know for sure. But we do know that an account of it was later widely circulated as a brief account of a strange and unusual providence of God befallen to Elizabeth Knapp of Groton by me, Samuel Willard, head of her household. So once again, clearly what went on at Salem did not come from nowhere. In fact, it has some eerie similarities with earlier cases. But as mentioned, the Knapp possession is distinct in that nobody was accused of this possession, except, of course, maybe the devil. Nobody was tried for it, and her symptoms gradually waned over time. So clearly ideas of demonic possession and young, often powerless women as particularly vulnerable to it were circulating around New England at this time. But to quote, Salem's unique element was the expressed idea of a covenant conspiracy of witches, a parallel anti-Christian community within the visible Christian one, with accounts of witches' sabbaths that find their roots in English folk magical belief. So imported ideas of clandestine folk magic mix with various accounts of demonic possessions to create the external expression of a witch epidemic and a method by which to find and destroy those involved. And the external expression is key. As with Salem, not only were the accused expected to defend themselves at their own trials, but from the outset also, the trials were to be conducted in public. So the whole episode has been labelled, I feel quite generously, as a case of mass hysteria, highlighting the complicit nature of the entire communities involved. So those accused were forced to defend themselves in public forums, as perjury and bearing false witness were considered felonies at this time. And of course, if they were accused of being a witch by a previous witch, if they disagreed, they were committing perjury. So from this, we gather the implication that those accused were put in a position where disagreeing with their accused when the accused's suffering was so evident meant that they were perjuring themselves. So if you're wondering how anyone can win in this situation, the only real way of navigating this and potentially saving oneself was by accusing or nominating someone else as responsible. So something interesting and different about the Salem trials and an influence we should explore a little is this reflexive nature of the victims being present as the accused were interrogated. So when reading through the trial records, they are peppered with references to accusations levelled at the person on trial and their answer or non-answer immediately being met with vocal and physical responses from those terrorised by them. Every move they made was in effect echoed in the ever-growing crowd of their victims and their displays of pain and torment grew more acute and more overt as time passed. Alongside this, we also have members of the community interjecting with their own questions and suppositions, references to other cases used to back up the current one. It is hard to argue that the trials could stand up to any modern definition of justice. At Salem, the trial became a public spectacle involving entire communities. Now, of course, this idea of public spectacle is not new. 
after all, before Salem, a lot of testing for witches and, of course, their executions were done publicly. And as we've already spoken of, the kind of social, emotional catharsis that was wrapped up around these convictions might have fed into the need for this. In Salem, to quote, as historian Mary Beth Norton describes it, the situation is explosive. Between the magistrates who assume the guilt of the accused, the accused themselves who had to figure out how to answer the charges against them, the afflicted whose torments grew more theatrical and acute with the presence of an audience, and the audience itself tossing in unsolicited comments and inducements as the examinations took place, I think it's pretty clear that the trials had more in common with live performances than they did with the enactment of law. But our perception of this is by necessity filtered through the records around it and the voices and the viewpoints of those writing them. So the nature of the more modern and usually more documented New England cases serve an interesting utility in that even if they don't represent an objective truth, they give a lot of information about the perception of the trials and the trials as received as a kind of performance. Now, the accused actions or lack of actions were on trial also. And this is where the history of the witches cross paths with the history of emotions. The accused were often judged solely on their emotional response to the events around them. Again, to quote, Witches are either all too emotionally human or inhumanly cool under pressure and were damned either way. So that was from Emotions in Witchcraft. Now, because of all this, there is still the lingering question of why people confessed. So why did Tichiba confess, despite her love for the child believed to be her victim? The study of emotions as performed, experienced and understood culturally stresses how they can be social processes. So we've already hinted at the idea of the trials as a way in which societies blow off some steam, as it were, and that the public and group processes of this, in theory, can help to galvanise a society under pressure or at risk. So that explains how the trials involved more and more people and became more theatrical over time, but it does not fully explain why an individual would implicate themselves and stick to their confession knowing that it might mean their death. Could it be that in saying the words, one might come to believe it? The study of emotions highlights the link between the emotion as externally performed, as shared with others in particular acceptable ways, and the psychological effect this can have. So this social catharsis angle we have touched on, this idea of socially enacted emotions, although, of course, we could not count acts of this kind as socially acceptable by today's standard and they were hardly ubiquitous then, there is an argument that they were more acceptable, that this was a more normal expression of a social emotion. But strong emotions as performed and experienced also can have psychological effects, undeniably. So as anyone who's ever finally cried after a long period of sadness, this physical, sad performance has physical reactions, it releases endorphins on our brain and calms us. And with the study of emotions, to quote, an approach grounded in neurobiology and evolutionary psychology, suggests that anger, hatred and jealousy can trigger strong stress reactions in those to whom they are directed, 
reactions culturally explained as witchcraft, i.e. those on trial and the victims, due simply to having strong emotions aimed at them, no doubt would have felt some physical stress responses which they may have attributed to witchcraft. The physical enacting of said emotions, even feigned, produces a physical response in the body. And when these emotions are caused by someone's non-physical actions, there is a kind of witchcraft at play. Many of those accused had long bad reputations, and many of the victim's symptoms may have been the result of genuine fear. In the trial records, we see again and again a process by which the accused are led to believe that they have somehow made themselves guilty just by thinking it or saying it at some point versus previous trials where the doing and the resulting physical hurt was what made the act criminal. So in Mr. Haythorne questioning Martha Corey, he says, You say you are no witch. Maybe you mean you never covenanted with the devil. Did you never deal with any familiar? So by bringing in the, the broad idea of basically have you ever interacted with any animal They are attempting to lead her by degree to the conclusion everyone is already set on, that she is guilty. And we see the same in this questioning of Rebecca Nurse. He uses the same techniques to try to lead the women to the same conclusion. And the reason he does it is the same reason many fall to admitting some shame. Because the belief, like the symptoms of the victims, is catching. As Valerie Kivelson puts it in Emotions in the History of Witchcraft, this eureka moment that words are actions comes to no surprise to anyone who studies witchcraft. But whether the words were sincerely believed by her, there is a strong doubt as to whether Tituba's crucial confession itself truly originated from her own mind, or whether she was externally influenced. So the description of her guilt with her meeting at a witch's Sabbath, travelling there on a broomstick, the spirit familiar she had seen with the other accused, and the harm they implicated her in doing to these children, they are all classic hallmarks of English witch folklore, which for various reasons is called into question just how deep a knowledge of the subject she may have had herself. What is not called into question, though, is that her owner and patriarch of the household, Samuel Paris, did have this knowledge. So Tituba admitted in her own deposition that she could not read, and what's more, could not sign her name, therefore could likely not write either. What's more, as mentioned, she was from Barbados, so the idea of her having deep familiarity with English witch-hunting handbooks seems low. It was more likely theorised that she may have had knowledge of voodoo and shared some of this information with others. So she had knowledge of other magical practitioners, but not the kind of English folkloric witches that we are familiar with. However, those administering her trials did have deep scholastic knowledge. And what's more, the accounts we have of the proceedings are authored by the same people. Now, we cannot say how far their interpretations of Tituba's words may have influenced the trial and or how they were received and disseminated, only that there is an undeniable influence in that some of what survives to us was clearly created for an audience with the same kind of knowledge base. But ignoring any bias, any artifice, any 
narrativizing of the events as they were taking place, there is no doubt in the core belief at this time that the devil is real and could enact physical change in people's lives. So it was essential to how the world worked as gravity, a force with no doubt about its existence, even if the methods of finding it were changing. And an example of just how gravely this threat was taken by some, although I don't want to imply that everyone involved wholeheartedly believed what they were doing was right, was for the accusations to reach George Burroughs, a deposed minister. And with this accusation, witchcraft had permeated to the very heart of theological belief and the godly centre of the community. The spectral image of Burroughs appeared to one Elizabeth Hubbard at nights, with the familiar book containing the marks of those who had signed this devil's covenant in their own blood. He visited, tempted, threatened Hubbard for months on end, naming others similarly tormented or involved in this conspiracy themselves. Now he, like many others, would go on to be executed for his crimes, of which, again, the only real evidence against him was spectral. This truly was an apparatus against which everyone was vulnerable. But like it often does, the hysteria was stopped when the accusations reached just one step too far. So Governor's wife, Lady Mary Phipps, was accused of witchcraft and arrested in September of 1692. Now, she had been very vocally sympathetic towards the accused witches, which was probably the reason why she was drawn into the situation, which was gathering more and more criticism. Now, Governor Phipps would intervene and gut the proceedings of their two perpetuating forces. He ordered spectral evidence and testimony would no longer suffice to convict a suspected witch. He would then go on to release all of those who remained in custody and pardon them. And with his disassembling of the witches' courts, he also established a superior court of judicature which was instructed not to admit spectral evidence in courts. And with that, it was all over. Now, Salem is noteworthy in history in that people find it inexplicable. I don't think it is such. I think when looking at the history of witchcraft, there is a complicated path to be taken from the old idea of the witch, the biblical witch or the Witch of Antiquity, to the Salem Witch Trials. But there is a process. There are choices made to get from one step to another. And although the road is not straightforward, conscious steps are made each time to move down it. But looking at it as if it came from a vacuum, it's hard to see all the hints and echoes that got us here. It feels like a fire that suddenly swelled and burnt itself out, which simply isn't the case. Choices were made to get to that point, and choices were made to get back. Now, there are, of course, many theories around what caused Salem. Mass hysteria, convulsive ergotism, which is a condition caused by ingesting a specific kind of fungus, which affects the rye, which made up a fair portion of the colonists' diet. The economic downturn caused by the Little Ice Age that lasted from 1550 to 1800, for example, or something to do with the newly established frontier community's response to their environment or as native peoples. But to quote the Penguin Book of Witches, none of these proximate causes suggest that Salem was a usual or predictable phenomenon, and they all reinforce the comforting thought that such a widespread government-sanctioned panic cannot possibly happen again. But when looked at in its long 
broad context, it is easy to see the threads picked up, abandon the elements stressed to adapt the narrative of the dangerous witch to a current political or social aim. Again to quote, Within this slippery historical continuum of behaviour, precedent, practice and response, witchcraft in North American religious and intellectual life becomes less safe to think about. By late 1692, critical voices to the Salem trials were growing in number and power. By this point, 19 executed witches had been hanged after lengthy imprisonment, including most of those spoken of here. Their names are Bridget Bishop, Sarah Good, Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, Sarah Wilds, Reverend George Burroughs, Martha Carrier, John Proctor, John Willard, Martha Corey, Mary Eastie, Mary Parker, Alice Parker, Anne Pudiator, Wilmot Red, Margaret Scott, and Samuel Wardwell Sr. Now, I regret I could not speak in detail on everyone involved in this list, but this is to say nothing of the thousands of lives we have had to skim over in this brief exploration of the historical witch. In October 1692, theologian Increase Mather published Cases of Conscience Concerning Evil Spirits Personating Men, which is, I'm sure you can gather, questions whether the spectral appearance of a person is enough to condemn them and whether those condemning for this evidence were morally in the rights. So the course set up to sentence and execute the accused witches was dissolved, and the panic seemed to die down as quickly as it reared up. In time, the crime of witchcraft would be reclassified as a matter of fraud as opposed to a literal deal with the devil. Some of those involved would apologise, Samuel Sewell being the only judge to do so. Quote, Desiring to take the blame and shame of it, asking pardon of men. Anne Putnam would also issue her own confession for her part in accusing dozens and being involved in their execution. To quote, That I, then being in my childhood, should, by such a providence of God, be made an instrument for the accusing of several people for grievous crimes, whereby their lives were taken away from them, whom now I have just grounds and good reason to believe they were innocent persons, and that it was a great delusion of Satan that deceived me in that sad time. So Putnam still defended herself somewhat here, saying that like those accused, she had been deceived by the devil's influence, which would be deliciously ironic if so many people were not murdered by her. A number of jurors would do the same, Quote, confessing that they were not capable to understand, not able to withstand the mysterious delusions of the powers of darkness and prince of the air. So it was the devil, funny enough, that moved them to their actions. The words they used to defend themselves could very well be used to describe those accused and compelled to confess under weight of an entire community's insistence of their sins. To quote, as being then under the power of a strong and general delusion, utterly unacquainted with and not experienced in matters of this nature. Boston merchant Robert Califf published in 1700, once again, despite perhaps good intentions, attempts to call Salem an anomaly, an abhorrent act nobody understands. 
it were too Icarian a task for one unfurnished with necessary learning and library to give any just account from whence so great delusions have sprung and so long continued. So it was one of many attempts, of course, to distance these events from men of learning, of library, label them as something illogical when it just wasn't. So I hope you'll catch me next week where we will round out this discussion on the history of the witch by looking at Wicca or the modern witch. So the witch as a symbol of those oppressed is ripe for reclamation, and modern witchcraft has gone through many transformations and pulled in many directions. But we will be exploring the new feminist approaches to witches and witchcraft, the ways in which the witch has been reappropriated, and the good that has been done by witches and in service of the image of the witch. I feel like the more control there is over the image of the witch, the more chance we have of avoiding this repeatable apparatus from being used again, of being levelled against victims with no chance of defending themselves. So keeping the witch as a, a social image, never kind of forgetting its past, is essential and one of the ways in which we can defend ourselves against the government, which... A lot of the time is pretty aggressively for controlling us and demonising us in whatever way it can. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit more. In the meantime, though, you can find me wherever you like to find your podcast and you can chat with me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast. And search Weird Horizon Podcast on YouTube for episodes there if that's how you like to consume your contents. Wherever you find me, I will no doubt be quietly seizing at the instruments of power that are continually renewed and empowered to imprison and murder the less powerful. You know, just girly things like that. Self-care. <laughs> Stay spooky, my friends. Much love, as always, but for now. Bye.